I would rather eat the cookie dough than bake it and eat it as a cookie. You know they make that stuff, right? That you can eat. Yeah. What, what's the deal? You're not mm-hmm. supposed to eat raw cookie dough because you'll get sick or something. You might get salmonella, but I'm here to say I'm alive and well. <laughs> I was just about later. to say, <laughs> wouldn't that be the least of our worries? Like we were in college in the four loco era. Like I think we could eat some cookie dough, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. we're fine. Exactly. episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Not even this one. Wait, this is our 50th episode. Oh my God, it's our 50th episode. Five zero. Yeah, that is monumentous. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that word you made up to describe our bonus episode that just dropped. Yes, which I listened to again, and it is good. On the true story behind the movie Changeling, the 2008 movie with Angelina Jolie, about her son that goes missing, and the LAPD think that they found him, but it's not him. So. That's on our Patreon, and also, if you sign up for our Patreon, you get a shout-out, and if you haven't signed up for your shout-out, I have posted the shout-out form, so you can fill it out by the time this episode drops again. That's all at the $5 level. Yeah, all of that. All that. At the $7 level, you get our mini creeps, which we also just put a new one out, and you get a sticker and a thank you card with our autographs. And maybe with a wax seal, but like I said previously... <laughs> That day will probably come to an end (laughs) because I forgot to tell you this. I thought I had really mastered it by getting a wax seal glue gun. I think Amazon lied and just sent me like a regular glue gun for glue sticks, but they sent wax sticks with it. I completely obliterated the thing. There was just like wax pouring out. It was a mess. So Um, we're back to the spoon one at a time. So it's definitely going to be. no. Yeah. (laughs) The wax seals might be coming to an end. So. (laughs) Get it in quick, right now. 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 (laughs) And then we have a $10 level that gets you all of that, plus 10% off merch. Also, for the $10 level, I don't know what it's going to be yet, but, oh, I forgot to tell you, the Waffle House guy reached out to me again, and I was like, hey, I didn't fill out the application because here's the deal. I know you probably need a regular commitment, and I'm really not able to do that. Like, I wish I could just pick up a shift, like, here and there, because really, like, I'm busy the next three weekends. And he's like, no, we can work that out, (laughs) which obviously they've never done before. But like, it's truly like COVID is, I mean, people are desperate. So I don't know what it's going to be, but $10 level people could get maybe a shout out of me in uniform at the waffle or. Are you telling me right now? (laughs) You're working at the waffle house now. Not yet, but potentially. And I kind of wish I would have let this waffle house thing run a little longer before. I was like back in it, but here we are, you know, here we are. (laughs) All right. Are you ready for this? It depends. I feel like, (laughs) I feel like I really need you to boost my mood and something tells me that's not why we're on the Zoom call. Yeah, that's not what this is going to be. 
That is not. I did eat a piece of cake with cookie dough in between the layers. So, and I am drinking a watermelon vodka. Ooh, ooh. prepared by my very special bartender, not Ryan. Water. Wait, what is it mixed with? Like soda? Watermelon and vodka. Oh, watermelon juice. Oh, okay, watermelon got juice ooh, with some ooh. Tito's with a little splash ooh. of lemonade. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. All right. Yeah, this is not an uplifting story. There's really no upside here at all. Great. Can't wait. Today, I'm going to tell you about the murders of Noah, John, Paul, Luke, and Mary Yates. Oh, <gasps> that was so many names. But this is part of your non-consecutive series. This story is the second part of my non-consecutive so far three-part series on my hometown murders, the women of Clear Lake who snapped. So many people in our DMs are going to be excited about this. Oh, that's it. Yes, they are. I'm very excited to excite them (laughs) with this awful, awful story. Part one was our episode 42, The Infamous Astronaut. So go check that one out if you haven't yet. Hello. To clarify, though, they are unrelated. So like, right. They yeah. are totally like unrelated. A- the only relation to it is that they happened down the street from me. <laughs> yes. And they're both, but it's very good. They're good stories. They're good stories. This is a story I've grown up hearing. It was huge news. I mean, we all talked about it like it was just the most salacious thing. But doing the research for this case, I just could not stop crying. Like, oh. I knew what happened, but I don't know. It was just like hitting different. So anyway, content warnings galore for the murder of children in this one. I grew up down the street from you, but I didn't. What year did this happen? This takes place in June of 2001. Oh, okay. So I wasn't as young as I thought. I don't think I knew. Like, I obviously knew the name and I knew who was responsible, but I don't know anything really. Yes. I knew a lot, but I don't know. I just think like... I was really picturing it this time when I was researching it. Like, I was really picturing what happened, and it just – the imagery. Speaking of timeliness, 2001, we just – a few days ago was the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And that, I feel like, is the – I mean, that was such a pivotal – that's like when our complete – like, our lives change forever moving forward for our generation. Yes. I was a freshman in high school, and that's, like, all I remember. 
basically freshman and sophomore year. Like that, that's just like what I remember. So you say 2001, I know nothing else. I don't know Andrew Yates. I don't know anything else except for like growing up during 9-11. Yeah. And when I heard that, when I like went back and researched this and and realized it was in June of 2001. So this is like three months before 9-11. This was the summer after my ninth grade year. And I was really surprised actually that it was so close because I think of both of those events as like pretty big. I mean, obviously, 9-11 was way bigger to me than the Andrew Yates case. But yeah, but one's in your backyard, you know. Right. And I mean, I, I'm talking one mile away. Like I Googled it. <laughs> it was one oh, mile away. It was like the neighborhood was across the street from the neighborhood I lived in at the time. So it was a big deal for me. And I don't think of those two events as happening anywhere close to each other. So it was just interesting. All right. A big thanks to Suzanne O'Malley, the journalist who covered this crime in her book, Are You There Alone? The Unspeakable Crime of Andrea Yates. Big uh, source there, that book. It was 9.56 a.m. when Russell Yates's cell phone started ringing. Russell, who went by Rusty, was in his office at NASA's Johnson Space Center, where he worked Ooh. as a, yes, as a shuttle vehicle engineer. Yes, another Russell. <laughs> yeah, one that works at NASA, so... <laughs> He's going to be struggling through this whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) He saw it was his wife calling, and it had only been an hour since he'd last seen her when he'd left her at the house with their five children. As he answered the phone, his mind was focused on the presentation he was giving in 30 minutes to the space shuttle program manager on progress he'd made with some upgrades to the shuttle. That is, until he heard her speak. You need to come home, she said. He recognized her tone of voice. It was the tone she'd used two years ago when she'd asked him to come home after Luke, their fourth son, was born, and she was having a nervous breakdown. But this time, she sounded worse. What's wrong? He asked. It's time, Andrea said. Rusty asked her what she meant, but she just repeated the same words. It's time. Rusty didn't need to hear anymore. He rushed out of the office, letting someone know that he had a family emergency. He called his mother, Dora Yates, who had come down to Houston to help out when Andrea became ill, and she was supposed to be at the house soon to help with the kids. They had a new baby at home, six-month-old Mary, and Andrea's dad had died three months earlier. She had not been doing well. Rusty was hoping his mom was there at the house, but when she answered the phone, she said she hadn't left her hotel yet. Rusty told her to hurry. He lived 10 minutes away. He raced to his car in the parking lot and called Andrea back from the car as he peeled out of the lot. He asked her, is anybody hurt? And she said, yes. And he asked who? And she said, the kids. And he asked which ones? And she said, all of them. Rusty was not the only one headed to the Yates' home. Officer David Knapp was also on his way over to do a welfare check. 911 had gotten an odd call a few minutes before from Andrea Yates who requested a police officer come to the house, but she wouldn't say why. The dispatcher thought it was a domestic abuse situation and that Andrea couldn't answer her questions because her husband was nearby. Andrea told the dispatcher she was sick, she needed a police officer, and she was at home with her five children, aged seven, five, three, two, and six months. Officer Knapp arrived at the Yates house at 942 Beachcomber Lane. He knocked on the door of the one-story house, and a woman with long, dark hair answered the door. She was breathing heavy, her eyes were wide, and she was wet. Officer Knapp asked her what she needed a police officer for, and she looked him straight in the eye as she said, 
I just killed my kids. Oh my God. So there was no, I, I, I did oh, hold on. I can't think. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't realize it was so like, she just did it and was like, yeah, I did this. Also, how yeah. are there that many people in a one-story house? It's yeah. not important, but I just have a lot of questions. Okay. I think it gets a little important when you find out that one of the rooms in the three-bedroom house was used for storage. But <gasps> Officer Knapp wasn't prepared for that answer. He asked her where they were, and she told him, in the bed. He walked into the house and into the master bedroom, which had a king-size mattress and a box spring on the floor. <gasps> And sticking out from under the burgundy sheets on the mattress was the small arm of two-year-old Luke Yates. Oh, I hate this story. I know. It's so bad. He pulled back the covers to reveal four children tucked in and appearing to be resting in the bed. The baby, Mary, her head was lying on her older brother's arm. Officer Knapp checked each one of them for signs of life, but they were all dead. It was too late and there was nothing he could do for them. Officer Frank Stumpo had been called to the house on a welfare check, and I'm not even in a mood to laugh at Stumpo. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, fine, you know. Uh, and he walked into the house to find Officer Knapp in the living room with Andrea Yates. He retraced Officer Knapp's steps, and he saw the children in the master bedroom, and he thought they were dolls at first. <gasps> and he said when he touched one of the children's heads, it was warm to the touch. I'm going to vomit. Oh, my God. Like, I do I get PTO from this podcast? Can I take a day? I would like to, I would like to <laughs> take today off. You can take any day but Monday. <laughs> oh, you bitch. <laughs> I know. He passed the guest bathroom in the hall, and that's where he found the fifth child, the oldest, seven-year-old Noah Yates, floating face down in the bathtub. <gasps> Officer Stumpo said he wanted to throw up, and the sergeant, David Svon, was called to the scene. Officer Stumpo met him at the door and told him Andrea killed her kids. Stumpo arrested and handcuffed Yates while Sergeant Svon did a walk through the house. Every part of the house outside of the bedroom and the bathroom looked like your typical suburban family home. There were family photos on the refrigerator doors, cereal bowls on the table in the kitchen, and there were toys all over the place. Outside, officers were putting up crime scene tape. Rusty Yates arrived shortly after Svon, screaming. Svon remembers him saying over and over, what did she do to my kids? When Svon told him all five of them were dead, he said oh Rusty God. fell to the ground, pounded on it, and began screaming. He stood up, got a plastic yard chair, and threw it, and then fell to the ground again in the fetal position, screaming. He wanted to see his kids, but officers said the house was off limits, and they took him to the backyard to get more privacy. Their house is on a corner lot on the corner of one of the main roads of the neighborhood. And in Rusty's mind, he was telling himself that Noah was with his mother. He knew he'd seen Noah at the house that morning when he left for work, but his mind wanted to believe that one of the kids had somehow survived. And Dora, his mother, would sometimes take one of the kids for a sleepover with her at her motel room. But it wasn't to be. It's so hard for me to process that someone can be struggling so badly that their only option is to do something like this. It could have been preventable if people took mental health issues a little more seriously, mm -hmm. like they do now, you know, and mm -hmm. that's changing for the better. Anyways, we'll go into all of it. Rusty heard sobbing coming from the front of the house, and he thought it was Andrea. 
but it was actually his mother, Dora, who had just arrived and been informed that all of her grandchildren were dead. (gasps) Inside, the police were trying to answer a question that everyone wanted to understand. Why had she done this? Homicide detectives had arrived. They read Andrea her rights, got her consent to search the house, and then they drove her to police headquarters. The media had already gotten a hold of the story, and on the way to the station, one shock jock called Andrea the rub-a-dub-dub, five kids dead in a tub murderer. Ha 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 ha. Apparently, Stumpo turned the volume up on the radio as he listened to it with Andrea in the back seat and told her that she was a celebrity. So who was this celebrity, and how did her life culminate with this tragic event? I refuse to call her that. (laughs) That's what I will say there. Yeah. Andrea Yates was born in 1964 in Houston. She was incredibly smart, even becoming valedictorian of her class, captain of her swim team, an officer in the National Honor Society. But she also suffered from an eating disorder, depression, and had expressed thoughts of suicide in high school. I don't even think I need to tell you that the Blaine Buffets opened a new giant location on the corner of I don't give a shit and good for you. I actually have (laughs) a whole section in this later on that's just the Blaine Buffet. And it's like, here is all the servings for our Blaine Buffet today. Okay, great. Well, because now that there's two locations, we're like serving it up. Yes, there are a lot of them in here. Okay. She got her nursing degree, and from 1986 to 1994, she worked as a registered nurse at MD Anderson, the number one cancer hospital in the country. She was studious and shy, and she didn't date at all until she was 23. And one of her first experiences with depression was after a failed relationship at 24. And at 25, she met Rusty at the apartment complex they both lived at. Andrea was usually reserved, but she was the one that struck up a conversation with him, and they hit it off. In fact, Rusty said he knew early on that Andrea was the one and that he would marry her one day. Oh, no, Rusty. Not long after they started dating, Rusty introduced Andrea to his religious mentors, Michael and Rachel Warrenyecki. Love that last name. (laughs) We don't love them. Oh, yeah, no. He'd been a follower of Warren Eckes since hearing him preach near Auburn University because he said he didn't sound like a hypocrite. And when I say preach, I mean like fire and brimstone type preaching, you know, mm-hmm. the kind that just tells everyone they're going to hell. The Warren Eckes, along with their six children that they homeschooled, traveled around the U.S. in a motorhome visiting college campuses and preaching from sidewalks. Students said the only words they could ever hear when they were like preaching on the sidewalk were satan and god and that he was just yelling yeah we know exactly who these people are they yelled at us every day Uh, on campus mm -hmm. they found him very disturbing eventually andrea and rusty moved in together and spent a lot of their time together involved in religious studies and on april 17th 1993 they got married They first bought a four-bedroom house in Friendswood, which is actually where I live now, with the goal of having as many babies as nature would allow. To clarify, that's that's their goal. It's not my goal. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, "Mm." (laughs) Within two months of being married, Andrea was pregnant with their first child, Noah, who was born in 1994. After he was born, Andrea quit her nursing job to be a stay-at-home mom and quickly had another son, John. Rusty's job at NASA wanted him to go to Tampa, Florida for six months, so they rented out their house in Friendswood, put their stuff in storage, and moved into a trailer home in Florida. 
When they got back to Houston, they realized they didn't need all that space, and they moved into a 38-foot travel trailer on an RV campground in Hitchcock, which is... Why? I know. Which is south of Clear Lake. And if you look at it on Google Maps, it basically just looks like a giant field. It is. (laughs) I mean, that was no hey. Like, I'm all about that life. Like, (laughs) meet me in the sticks, you know? Not me. Yeah, well, we know. We have nothing in common. (laughs) But on the campgrounds was a pool, a laundromat, playground, showers, and tons of people living there full time. Eventually, they decided this was the life for them, and they sold their house in Friendswood. In 1997, they had their third child, Paul, and in 1998, Rusty and Andrea decided to buy the Warrenecki's 350-square-foot bus-turned-motorhome that they'd been living in. And because of this sale, Rusty and the Warrenecki's had some kind of falling out, and it's said that Rusty only agreed with some of their ideas, and it was Andrea who really embraced the more extremist sermons where Michael Warrenecki would preach things like, the role of women is derived from the sin of Eve, and bad mothers who are going to hell create bad children who will go to hell. Just really uplifting things, you know. In 1999, their fourth child, Luke, was born. And on June 16th, 1999, almost two years to the day before the murders, Andrea had called Rusty at work crying, asking him to come home. They were still living in the motorhome in Hitchcock, and he quickly got there to find her in the back room, bent over, shaking her legs and hands uncontrollably and telling him that she needed help. Rusty had no idea what was happening, but he tried to help her. He thought maybe fresh air was what she needed, so he took her and the kids to Galveston to walk on the seawall. Fresh air. Right. Andrea was not better from that, so he took her to Way her to really spring for, for fresh air, not like Yellowstone or like Niagara Falls, <laughs> like Galveston. Right. Like I get down there and I'm plugging my nose the first 30 minutes because it smells <laughs> like dead fish. And I like Galveston, so. <laughs> <laughs> I like Galveston. I don't think it smells like dead fish. It's just, it's maybe it's like the salty, like, the... like it takes a while for your nose to adjust sometimes. Yeah, yeah I mean, there is definitely an, an odor, but I like <laughs> it. I think it just smells like the ocean. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Somebody's I mean, like, it's like post-hurricane too. Like That's things not what the out. ocean smells like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like real people, like by yeah. a real coast. <laughs> mm. The next day, Andrea took her father's prescription medication. He had a prescription of trazodone. It's a prescription with a really strong sedative quality. And she took 40 to 50, 50 milligram tablets. 40 of them? To 50, yeah. Like 40 to 50 tablets, not milligrams. 40 40 to 50 50 tablets tablets that are 50 milligrams. Yeah. Hold on. Let me do the math there. Let's say she took 45, you know? Okay, yeah. So she had 2,250 milligrams of trazodone. Yeah. It was a dose that definitely could have killed her. But her mother found her and took her to the ER. And Andrea told the intake nurse that she didn't want to die. She just wanted the misery to go away. She's still talking? Like, I thought she'd be in a coma. I took half a trazodone when I got my wisdom teeth out, and I was, like, hallucinating. I thought I was going to die. Oh, wow. Maybe that was after they had treated her. Because, yeah, she probably, like, wasn't, like, having a chat, you know. (laughs) She'd lost 10 pounds in less than three weeks. She had poor eye contact, poor concentration, low energy and fatigue. 
And she was still breastfeeding Luke, who was four months old at this time. The psychiatrist on call that night noted that she had some delusional guilt, like that she was a bad mother. He marked her as high risk for suicide or self-harm and placed her on -on one-on-one observation every 15 minutes and prescribed Ativan to help her sleep. And he took her word for it that she'd been fine until Luke was born, her fourth child. Andrea was ashamed about her suicide attempt, and she felt worthless and hopeless, but she had a hard time expressing any of those feelings, and she was inching her way towards a completely catatonic state. The social worker Norma Tariak wrote in her notes that Andrea was unwilling or unable to identify recent life stressors and said that Rusty was aware and accepting of his wife's illness, but preferred to call it postpartum depression instead of major depression. I guess Rusty was more comfortable with postpartum depression. Toriak sensed something was dangerously wrong, but since she wasn't a doctor, she wasn't equipped to treat the problem. She couldn't let Andrea be released in her condition, though. So she focused her concerns on their living arrangements. Rusty and Andrea and their four children all living on a converted bus on a campground. She called CPS to report the unusual living arrangements, but CPS was like, there's no abuse or neglect here, so there's really nothing that we can do. Wait, who called to report it? The social worker. Social worker. Mm-hmm. That was like working with Andrea while she was yeah, in the hospital. after. Okay. Andrea continued to stay inpatient in the hospital because her depression was not getting any better. They raised her dose of Zoloft to 100 milligrams every day, and then a few days later raised it again to 150 milligrams. Oh, my goodness. And then after seven days in the hospital, her insurance was tapped out, and so she was discharged with a month's supply of Zoloft and a note from the doctor saying she was in stable condition. At home, Andrea started acting weird with the kids. Like, she would hold baby Luke constantly, all the time. She would never put him down. But she wouldn't feed him. Someone else would have to feed him. She also didn't interact much with the other kids, but she was worried they were eating too much. And she wasn't taking her Zoloft consistently. She'd been prescribed an antipsychotic and she'd flushed it down the toilet. Three weeks later, she tried to slit her throat in the bathroom of her parents' home. She begged Rusty to please let her do it. Rusty took her to a different hospital where her new psychiatrist, Dr. Starbranch, practiced. She'd started seeing him at the beginning of the month soon after she'd been discharged, and her illness had only progressed since then. And Dr. Starbranch evaluated her and found her mute, suicidal, and psychotic. Mute? Yeah. So like she by had, choice. She had a, a thing of selective mutism, like when mm. she would have these psychotic episodes. Interesting. Later, Andrea said that she was scared she would hurt someone because of audio and visual hallucinations she was having, and she thought it would be better if she killed herself. She was also convinced that she had the mark of the beast on the top of her head, 666. But when doctors examined her head, they found scabs from where she desperately picked at her scalp. And she did not believe that antipsychotic drugs would help her with these hallucinations. Oh my goodness. These were all attributed to postpartum psychosis, which is pretty rare. One in a thousand mothers compared to postpartum depression, which affects one in 10. So I do want to make that clear that... Everybody says Andrea Yates did this because she had postpartum depression. That's not true. Postpartum depression is very common. Like one in 10, that's a huge number. 10% have it. It's not this. This was postpartum psychosis. So once again, she did not kill her children because of postpartum depression. So people need to stop saying that. Yeah, that feels really important because 
I mean, I know people that have had postpartum depression yes. and now have come out of that, have a great, loving, like, relationship Absolutely. with their child. I would say most of the m- friends that I have that are mothers went through, it's a spectrum, but they went through some yeah. form of postpartum depression afterwards. And there's a huge stigma. That is not this. It, you know, it's normal. That is normal. This is not. Yeah. Normalize it, people. <laughs> yes. Starbranch prescribed an injectable antipsychotic drug cocktail that included the antipsychotic drug Haldol, which I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Wait, is it in an actual cocktail? It's in a syringe. And it would be injected every three weeks to make sure that she took the medication because, you know, she was not very good about that. And Rusty said it was like a miracle. He said it worked immediately. And they were able to stay up late in her hospital room and had one of the best conversations of their lives. Ugh. I know. By this time, they'd bought their three-bedroom house in Clear Lake. And Rusty said Andrea never complained about the bus, but he figured the house would be better for her. And I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, Rusty. Sorry, dude. She's complaining about the bus. It's probably not to you. It's probably to all her friends. Right. And Andrea also didn't seem like she was the personality type that would complain. Like, she was very quiet and submissive. (laughs) What's that like? <laughs> I feel like complaining I wouldn't is my know. normal state. Yeah, that's my normal state of being. Yeah, not me. I'm very quiet and submissive. Wait, are you serious? <laughs> oh, I was like, oh my God, we need to stop right now. No, those would not be adjectives used to describe me. Rusty built bunk beds for the boys in one of the bedrooms, and he used the third bedroom for storage. That's offensive. So all four of the boys were sharing a room. That's wild. At Andrea's first appointment, Dr. Starbranch told her that even though she was feeling better, she needed to make sure that she continued to take her medication. Andrea had a history of not being compliant with her meds, saying that she was afraid of drugs and addiction, and depending on the drugs made her feel like she was weak. And if anyone is on antidepressants and feels that way, I want you to stop this episode right now, and I want you to open up YouTube, and I want you to look up the song, Antidepressants Are So Not a Big Deal, from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and then watch it every time you feel that way, because antidepressants are so not a big deal. All right. Thank you. Not a big deal. (laughs) So what's your own antidepressants? (laughs) (laughs) By Andrea's next visit on August 16th, 1999, she told Dr. Starbranch that she wanted off the medications... Because she wanted to get pregnant again and have more kids. And that she was planning to homeschool the kids. And she told Dr. Starbranch that she and Rusty were planning on having as many babies as nature would allow. Dr. Starbranch wrote in his notes that that would surely guarantee future psychotic depression. Oh, good. Noted. That is written down then. Yep. Written down. Okay. Because Dr. Starbranch is like W.T. F. Yeah, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. So right now there's four the four boys. The four boys. Name them again. There's Noah, Noah John, John, Paul, Paul, and Luke. She didn't have any girl. Oh, Mary. Mary, yeah, is the last one. Okay. Their last visit to Dr. Starbranch was in January of 2000, where Andrea reported that she'd been off her meds since November of 1999. Oh my goodness. And the book said that Rusty said he didn't like her doing that, getting off her meds, but that she seemed to be doing okay. I mean, my dog doesn't like taking his meds either, but I put it in some peanut butter and tricked him. (laughs) 
Well, Andrea said she wanted off her meds unless she was symptomatic, and Rusty agreed. And this, I think, is what people have the hardest time with because he's dealt with her mental illness for several years now. And the doctor is telling them, if you do this, if you have more kids and if you get off the meds, it's a guarantee, a guarantee of a future psychotic depression. And you've already seen it. You've already seen her go through this. And Starbranch is also the only doctor they ever saw in the two-year span of her mental illness that ever indicated that Andrea could be a threat to others and not just herself. I mean, he never specifically said, like, she'll probably kill the kids, but he did say she could be a danger to others. I think it's bothering me, too, that it's not like she's just made, like, empty threats, like, I might hurt myself, or what, like, you caught her trying to slit her own throat, or she Mm -hmm. had this nervous breakdown, or she's, like, been doing weird yeah, things with none kids. of her suicide like her, i think both of her suicide attempts were very clear they weren't cries for help they were serious attempts she took yeah. 50 50 milligram pills of trazodone she oh, tried yeah, to slit her own throat i mean these are not mm-hmm. things like that begging him to let her do it i mean and then and then went into a catatonic state where she became psychotic i mean it, it she needed to be on her antipsychotic medication, and he should never have a allow. And I, you know, I'm obviously not somebody that thinks that husbands should control their wives or like allow them to do anything. But this is a different situation. That's yeah. I and mean, also, this was a family that did believe those things. So, like, yeah. I mean, he could have easily just said, uh, "No, you're taking this. We're staying on these medications." I feel like husbands and wives obviously have a responsibility to each other as partners, but when there's kids involved, it's like not an option, especially if your wife is alone with the kids and you're at work. Like, I don't feel like there's an option to just like decide that you're gonna not worry about it. I just think that when you have somebody that is so struggling with their mental health, and first of all, you have a, a practically a cure. You have this medication that's working wonderful for her. Mm-hmm. You stay on it so that things stay good. I just think that if Rusty had wanted her to stay on her medication, he could have gotten her to stay on it and not have another kid. They wanted to have another baby. They wanted to have as many babies as nature would allow. And she had to get okay. off her medication to do that. But I feel like, and you're, you could be right, but I also feel like if he's really in love with his wife and he's trying to support her and not push her away further, he's trying to kind of be agreeable not obviously knowing how bad this is. Like, I don't know. Part of me feels bad for him. Like, I'm sure he could have done more, but I don't know. I mean, you just don't know their dynamic. I mean, I feel bad for both of them. Oh, well, let me be clear. I don't. <laughs> I mean, obviously, she did a horrible thing. but She was out of her damn mind. But that here's my difference, though. Here's my difference. Mm-hmm. She had a choice. Like, she had medicine, and she didn't take it. So she was challenged by choice out of her mind. Yeah. like That's fair. Look, we're not going to agree. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that she should be like, you know, free as a bird or, or anything. I think she has to live with this, that, that choice of getting off of her meds forever. I think Rusty does too. That's all I'm saying. People are going to have feelings about this one. Yeah. I, uh, oof. By March 2000, seven months later, Andrea was pregnant again and homeschooling Noah, who was now in kindergarten, as well as caring for their three toddlers. But don't worry, Mm. 
Rusty would babysit one night a week to give her a little breaky break. No. Let me see that reading level. I don't trust this (laughs) homeschooling business. Rusty was also conducting family Bible study classes about every three nights or so for Andrea and the kids. Mm. Hashtag bless. (laughs) Andrea told her good friend Debbie that her suicide attempts were because she had either been possessed or influenced by Satan. And so she asked Debbie to ask her pastor if Satan could read minds. Andrea believed that Dr. Starbranch had cured her hormonal imbalance, and now all that was left was for her to work hard against Satan in the future. She said she Mm. just needed to be stronger, and she started consulting the Bible about demon possession and oppression. But throughout her pregnancy with Mary, it seemed like she was doing really well and growing healthier. Her condition was improving so much that she was even able to return to past activities that she used to enjoy, like swimming and cooking, even socializing. She was also interacting well with the kids, and she seemed hopeful about the future. But she did view her life on the bus as a failure that she should have been able to make work. By the time she gave birth in November of 2000, she'd been off her meds for a year. And then three months later, her father passed away. Andrea blamed herself for not prolonging his life with IVs and feeding tubes because she was a nurse. And after his funeral, her psychosis returned with a vengeance. Rusty recognized the signs, but this time her psychosis developed much quicker than before, only a matter of days. She started shaking her leg rapidly. She'd pick at spots on her scalp until they bled, something she'd done last time. Like with Luke, she would hold baby Mary constantly, terrified to put her down. She stopped eating, drinking, and speaking. She started having hallucinations, but she wouldn't tell anyone what they were. So Rusty called Dr. Starbranch, who told him to take her immediately to an inpatient mental health hospital. But Rusty couldn't manage the 45-minute drive to the hospital with five kids, and his mother-in-law was still struggling with the death of her husband. So he scheduled an office appointment for April 2nd, which was the next week. For the next two days, Rusty called several local psychiatrists to see if they would prescribe Andrea medications over the phone. But of course, no one would prescribe her anything without seeing her first. See, I do feel like he is trying. And I get it. He should have loaded him up in the car and gone. I get that. But hindsight is twenty twenty, And I think in the moment, you think everything's going to be okay. And that next week is like soon enough. Like, I think he's trying. Anyways, I don't know why I'm, like, on this soapbox of trying to, like, defend him. It's obviously you're just telling me the story, but I just feel – I feel like I need something, you know? Like, I need some something. I think Rusty tried. I don't think that he just dumped her off, and I don't think he didn't care. I think he I cared. I think you have to recognize, though, that you have a lot of pent-up feelings about – you've got a lot of ties towards this. You've got a lot of feelings about it, you know? Like, from someone just hearing the facts, I feel like I feel for him in a way. Or I shouldn't say hearing the facts, but like hearing you tell the story, I guess. I do feel for him. And I think he cared and I think he tried. But I think he made obvious mistakes by letting her get off her medication in the first place, by wanting her to have another baby. They have four. They live in a three-bedroom house and one of those rooms is storage. Why are we having another baby anyway? When you know that she just that, – that postpartum depression is what kicks off her postpartum psychosis – why are you going to try to have another baby? He, you know, they're not on birth control. They're trying to have another baby. I mean, he, that wasn't yeah, an accident. Fair, fair. And knowing that she'd been off her meds for a year, I think he cares. And I, I feel bad for him that this happened. I think he's partially to blame. I also know that Andrea cares. 
and that she is very much obviously to blame for what happened here. But I also feel bad for her because she has to live with the fact that she killed her five children in the middle of a giant psychosis, psychotic break. And that sucks. Like, it all sucks. The, this whole story sucks. This is why well, you're the one that chose to, to pick it. I didn't. People have been asking. <laughs> <laughs> These people suck. I'm just kidding. And to Love be you. honest, this story was a lot more difficult than I thought it would be because I knew it so well. I didn't think it would be this hard. And it's this whole story sucks. <laughs> but I mean, now we have like friends that are having kids and I don't know. It feels different now, you know? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Like, you work with kids. Like, I mean, it's different now. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so. Finally, on Saturday, March 31st, Rusty took Andrea to Devereaux, Texas Treatment Network in League City, which, uh, if you're from this area, (laughs) the word Devereaux doesn't inspire much confidence. It is one of the few affordable psychiatric inpatient facilities left in the Houston area, but there were so many complaints filed against it between 1996 and 1999, including evaluations performed by unqualified people. One patient had been on suicide watch and managed to complete suicide with a bedsheet, and it took them five hours to discover his body. And he was on suicide watch, which means that he should oh have been checked on like every 10 minutes or so. Is that place still around? Yeah, it is. It's uh. over there in League City. So it's not the best place for someone like Andrea, but she needed help and they were out of options, except for that one that was 45 minutes away. So I don't, I don't know why we're still here. Anyways. Okay. He told the admitting doctor that Andrea could not survive another night at home. And the doctors there suggested committing her to a state hospital, but instead Rusty convinced Andrea to voluntarily sign herself into Devereaux. And this next doctor, I think I'm going to give him a pseudonym because I really hate him and I kind of don't want to use his real name because I think he's awful. So we're going to call him Dr. S. And if you want to know his name, it's in the book. You can go look it up. But I'm about to I'm about to say some things. <laughs> oh, all right. Unfiltered. Unfiltered. So, <laughs> so doc, Dr. S was the attending psychiatrist treating Andrea. And he diagnosed her with major depression and said she was catatonic, refusing to talk, eat, drink, uh, drink fluids, or take medications. He said her condition was postpartum depression with possible psychotic features and that she lacked the capacity to make a decision regarding taking her medications because she is so severely depressed, possibly paranoid, had lost motivation and had already had a similar episode after her fourth child. So again, her not being able to make a decision about her medications, that's part of her mental illness. Anyways. Dr. S. said that if she failed to take psychoactive medications, it would result in further deterioration and possibly death. Then they put Andrea in group therapy sessions, but they didn't have any group therapy sessions for her illness at Devereaux. So instead, she went to groups on the effects of alcohol, withdrawal from drugs, and how to cope with chronic pain. What? She cried the entire way through a video on addiction. All this to a person who's terrified to take their antipsychotics because she's afraid of addiction. So oh. they're putting her in addiction treatment groups. I mean, God. I mean, my cousin did cure her fear of flying by skydiving multiple times. I see. I mean, exposure therapy is a thing, but. Not like that. This ain't it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this ain't it, sis. There is a way to do it. <laughs> 
And then around day 10 or 11 of her stay at Devereaux, Dr. S. indicated that Andrea had made an amazing recovery. She started feeding herself. She reported feeling 90% better. She denied suicidal ideas and asked to be discharged. It's just so hard. Like, there's no way to prove that other than, like, self-reporting. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you just went out, you can say all of those things to get out so that you can go home to harm yourself or someone else. Right. Uh, yeah. There. Yeah. I mean, there are things that there – are, there, are, there are signs that you can look for, you know? <laughs> Rusty came by to visit, and he couldn't believe Dr. S was planning on releasing her that day. She still looked like the sickest person in that place. So they agreed <laughs> to keep her one more day, but they discharged her the next day. And the first few days after she was discharged, she was down, but she was stable. But then she started to decline. So they went back to see Dr. S, and it was obvious that she was not doing well. So he increased the dose of the drug Effexor that she was on. And Rusty was frustrated that she wasn't being prescribed Haldol, which had worked so well the last time. It was in that cocktail that Dr. Branch had. And this is something that I just do not understand is I get that they're different doctors, but... They're telling you what worked. Why aren't you doing that? Why? Like, anyway, her depression got worse. And so Dr. S just kept upping her dosage of Effexor. And her eccentric behaviors returned as well. She'd pace the house. She'd stare at the TV screen for as long as 45 minutes. She'd gaze into space for hours. She was withdrawn and non-communicative. She'd walk in circles around and around as many as 30 times. Like, just like pacing? Just like in a circle, no purpose. Uh Uh-huh. She'd feed the children breakfast, but forget to feed them lunch. By this time, Rusty's mom, Dora, was there helping out. And one day in May, Noah noticed his mom filling the bathtub, even though she never took baths. And so this made him worried, and he went to tell his grandma. And so Dora asked Andrea why she was filling the tub, and she said, in case I need it. Ew. At this time, it was like she was worried about needing the water. Oh, I took that as, like, in case she needs it to, like, go out with her plan. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, in case I need it because I might need to kill kill my my kids. kids. Yeah, I know. Do we like Dora? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I feel, if there's one person that I truly feel for, it is her. I'm glad you feel for someone. (laughs) I feel for all of them, but her, like... I just couldn't imagine, like, your whole life. stop it. Stop it. How much must she blame herself that she was not there an hour earlier? Like, she must ask herself that question every single day. Like, what if I had gone there an hour earlier? 30 minutes earlier, could I have saved Noah? Like, God. Or Mary. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Okay. Sorry. It's not so fun to be a fanatic now, is it? <laughs> no. Welcome to my world. <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Creepers. When her next appointment came on May 4th, my birthday, she was near catatonic. Rusty asked if they could readmit her into Devereaux, and Dr. S said, well, she would qualify. Dr. S. had never contacted Dr. Starbranch for Andrea's medical records until six weeks after she'd first been his patient. The medication he was prescribing was not helping, and finally, he started treating her with four milligrams of Haldol a day, putting in his notes that it was at Rusty's request. And I'm like, why are you so, like, is it is it a pride thing? You just think you know what's best because you're a doctor? Like, When he's telling you we went through this two years ago and this helped, like this was a miracle. Why don't you go talk to Dr. Starbranch and figure out what it was? But then also, Rusty, why aren't you getting an appointment with Dr. Starbranch? Like he's the one that helped you last time. Why are you going back to Devereaux? I don't understand that either. Is there a reason maybe? Well, it seemed like at first he couldn't get in with Dr. Starbranch quickly enough. Uh Uh-huh. And so I don't know if because he couldn't get in with him, he he just decided to ch- switch doctors, which, you know, I've done many times. Like, you can't get in with this doctor, so you just go to this doctor, yeah. and they can do the mm-hmm. same thing, you know. But he was very frustrated that she wasn't being prescribed this drug that he knew worked. Mm-hmm. Andrea was discharged after only 10 days, and she wasn't any better, but she was stable at about 65% of her normal capacity, which I don't know how 40% you- accurate. Yeah, I'm like, how how do you gauge that? That's what I'm saying. You can just say, yeah. Yeah, that's know. a total, like, <laughs> just a made-up number. At her June 4th appointment with Dr. S, he agreed with Rusty that Andrea had plateaued, and he decided to taper off the Haldol. Later, he said there was no indication of psychosis, and that he thought the Haldol might be hindering the progress she could be making with the antidepressants that he wanted to prescribe. Okay, what is this, like a pissing contest? Exact, which is why we're calling him Dr. S. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who is he really? I don't want to say his name because I'm very angry <laughs> at him. That's why I'm confused because normally you would be like, Andy's, Andy's, Andy's. And now you're like giving him a nominee <laughs> when he sucks so bad. Like, no, blast his ass. <laughs> because I knew for 100% fact that Ian Diaz was in the wrong. I don't know enough about medication oh. and like the med- like medical practice to oh, say me either. that. Uh, I take it back. I take it back. Don't <laughs> to me. <laughs> so I'm less I'm less confident in my hatred of Dr. S, but it's still it's there. It's still there. It's burning bright. I think I'm right because Dr. S told Rusty to wean her off the Haldol 
much faster than the patient information sheet on the drug advises. After three days, she was off it completely. And they usually say to wean off after like weeks, you know. She had a slight improvement for a few days and then a sharp decline. Rusty took her to her June 18th appointment and told him he was concerned. This is two days out from the murders. But Dr. S said he didn't want to put her on Haldol. He kept saying it was a bad medicine and that he never found any evidence that psychosis was playing an important role. So Uh. he decided to continue on a course that had never shown any sign of working. He upped her doses and then told Andrea she needed to help him out. Never mind. He is Dr. Mohammed Saeed because he told her (laughs) that she needed to help him out with a more positive attitude. And he told her to keep her chin up. And two days later, she would drown her five children in the bathtub. So, how do you tell someone on antidepressants to have a positive positive attitude? attitude. She's trying. (gasps) I want to scream. That's why she's here. Oh my God. Uh. No, never mind. His name is. (laughs) That was amazing. Never mind, because I forgot he said that. Ooh! Are you slamming the keyboard? <laughs> no, I'm slamming bottle caps. Uh, <laughs> close enough. Also, during this time, Andrea was communicating with the Warneckies. Apparently, there had been a Where dis- are they at again? Didn't they move? I think they're, they're, they travel around preaching to college kids, screaming at them about Satan and hell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've seen that. Also, apparently, there had been that disagreement between Michael and Rusty over the sale of the motorhome, and they'd had a falling out. But Andrea was still in communication with them. Andrea had been struggling with the concept of salvation. And according to Michael and Rachel Warnecke, her time was running out. Oh, they told her that. Yeah. One of the last things Andrea had focused on before her grip on reality just left her completely was this poem called Modern Mother Worldly. It was written by the Warneckes and published in their newsletter, The Perilous Times. Are you ready for this? This is uh, classic poetry. It's going to go down in history as awful. (laughs) Modern Mother Worldly was very, very lazy. All her children drove her crazy. The Bible told her to spank and train them, but society said she must never constrain them. The fruit of rebellion she did now see. On the day of judgment, she will have no plea. Modern Mother Worldly cast in hell. Now what becomes of the children of such a Jezebel? That's it. That is absolutely the most heinous piece of trash I've ever heard. Yeah. One morning in June of 2001, the kids were watching cartoons and Andrea saw a message broadcast across the TV personally to her that she was a bad mother and that her children were eating too much sugar. Like, it just, like, came up like a PSA. Yeah, from Satan. It was in this state of mind that Andrea was left alone with her kids for an hour between the time that Rusty left for work and his mother came to the house. He thought she would be fine. And from what I could understand, because to be honest, once I I got to this part, I stopped reading as carefully because it's very sad. But from what I could understand... Dora had always come to the house when Rusty left. Like, she had always been there. And they talked about kind of giving Andrea a little bit more responsibility with the kids. And, like, they'd give Mm -hmm. her this hour in the morning. 
And she'd only done it like one other time before, or this might have been the first time, which just makes it all the more tragic. But she was clearly yeah. planning to do it. Like she she knew she was going to have that hour and this was going to be her one shot. Because all she could think about was that she was a terrible mother and that because she was a terrible mother, she had doomed her children to eternal damnation. But like she was fine? Like that's my question. No, she would also have to die and I'll get into that. But okay. she believed cameras were in her home, put there by the media to watch her performance as a mother. And Matthew mm. eighteen six was repeating in her mind. But whoever shall cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him that a millstone was hanged around his neck or that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. The morning of June 20th, 2001, Andrea locked the family dog up to get him out of the way and then filled the bathtub with water with the intent of drowning her children. When the police asked her why, it wasn't because she was mad at them or because they'd done something wrong. She said it was because she realized she'd not been a good mother to them. She said they weren't developing correctly. And the officer asked her if she meant they were having behavior and learning problems. And Andrea said yes. When she called Paul into the bathroom, she believed she was saving his soul. Paul was first. He was the best behaved and most compliant of the children. And he was only three. And she drowned him in the bathtub and then laid him face up on the bed, covering his entire body with a sheet. Though most well-behaved at three, that's amazing. Yeah. And then it was John, her five-year-old, who was her most high-energy and playful child. She called him to the bathroom, and he came, and she told him to get in the tub, but he wouldn't do it. So she picked him up and put him face down in the bathtub. And again, she put him in the bed, covering him with the sheet. And then she called Luke, the two-year-old, into the bathtub. Same thing. And then Mary, the baby, who'd been in the bathroom with her this entire time. Then Noah, the oldest child at seven years old, walked into the bathroom and he saw Mary in the tub and he said, what happened to Mary? And when Andrea tried to get him in the tub, he ran from her, but she caught him. Later, detectives, prosecutors, and Time magazine would say she chased him around the house, but Andrea would deny that she said that. I can't go into the details that the book did. If you'd like to know exactly how she got him into the tub, and how he struggled. It's in there and it's linked in the show notes, but suffice it to say, Noah suffered the same fate as all of the others. The day after the murders, Rusty spoke to the press that were assembled on his lawn and he told them about Andrea's struggles with her mental illness, that his in-laws were concentrating on getting Andrea a lawyer while he arranged the funerals. He said, I've got to remember that she wasn't herself. She was thinking irrationally. Katie Couric called Rusty personally and said if there was anything she could do to let her know, and he asked her to help him find an attorney for Andrea. And later that day, Aww. an NBC staffer sent Rusty a list of three prominent Houston defense attorneys. I really do go back and forth on Rusty. I've really hated him my whole life, but I think Come maybe, to my side. maybe I was a little hard on him. I do think that he made mistakes, but, you know. But we, okay. I do too, but we know that now reading all of this. Like in the moment, I could think of probably someone I thought was okay and I thought that I was giving them help they needed. And like, I think it's just the having another baby and letting her get off of her meds. I just think are. But don't you think he probably thought the baby? I mean, I'm not saying the baby's a good idea and he should have known, but don't you think you could see someone thinking like, 
if the children like bring her joy, even if she's struggling, like we already have four, maybe this is like. Well, and of course, nobody knows like how those conversations went between them. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, right. It's easy to judge when you don't really have all the details, you know. On June 22nd, 2001, Andrea went to court where she was charged with a single count of capital murder for intentionally and knowingly causing the death of her five children with a deadly weapon, water. She only got one charge and not five? So in the end, she would get two counts of capital murder, but it was charged for three of them. So they only charged her with three of the murders because they were holding on to the other two in case they wanted to try her again later so that she couldn't use double jeopardy. Yeah. Just in case the outcome was not what they wanted. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know you could do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't have to charge her with all of them. And also, I never really thought about it before. I never thought about quantifying water as a deadly weapon. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. yeah. Initially, the court determined that she was indigent, and they gave her a court-appointed attorney. But Rusty was able to get her George Parnum, one of the top defense attorneys in Houston. So is he still, like, thinking, like, is he just trying to, like, help her because he knows she was in a psychotic state? Or do you think he still, like, loves her and is hoping, like, they will come out of this together? No, right? Like, he's... I'm honestly, I'm not entirely sure what he wanted for her. I think he just wanted to make sure that she had the best defense attorney that she could get and that she got a fair trial. I'm really not sure what he was hoping the outcome would be. I don't... Did he pay for that? Yeah, I think so. I don't think... What lawyer is going to take that on pro bono? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think he just wanted to make sure that she had good representation to make sure that she was like taken care of. I don't think that he thought there was, I don't know. I don't know. I guess because he knew that it wasn't her that had done it. I don't Mm know. Oh, look at you kind of like having some empathy. I do have empathy for him. I do. I just think, you know what I think. I do. Rusty's brother, Randy, cleaned up for them. He took the sheets. Randy and Rusty. Yeah. Randy took the sheets off the bed and threw them away, and then he scrubbed the bathroom floor and the tub. And the day of the funeral, Johnson Space Center flew the flags at half-staff. Andrea met with a psychiatrist in the prison, which hadn't at this point even given her the thicker blanket used by inmates on Suicide Watch. Because prisons are really great when it comes to uh, inmates with mental health issues. We've talked about Mm -hmm. that before. She told the psychiatrist, Melissa Ferguson, that she believed that Satan was inside her and she would have to destroy him. And when Ferguson asked her how she was going to destroy Satan, Andrea said that she couldn't, but that Governor Bush would have to. True story. (laughs) I love that man. (laughs) Governor Bush would have to destroy Satan by overseeing her execution. And of course, at this time, Governor Bush was President Bush and he had been President Bush for two years. (laughs) She asked Ferguson for a razor to shave away the hair on the crown of her head to prove that the mark of the beast was still there. She told Ferguson that because she was evil, her children were not righteous and they had to die to be saved because if she killed them while they were still little, God would show mercy on their souls. And then she told Ferguson, I'm so stupid. Couldn't I have killed just one to fulfill the prophecy? Couldn't I have just offered Mary... Why Mary? Why, why Mary? She thought she was fulfilling a prophecy that would destroy Satan. 
Obviously, she was in a full psychotic break, and it was also clear to Ferguson that she had zero understanding of psychosis. Like, no doctor had taken the time to, like, explain to her what was happening to her. Yeah. Or she hadn't listened, you know, I don't know. Yeah, like, come on, let's, we got PowerPoint decks for that yet? With, like, (laughs) I know transitions and embedded videos. (laughs) Yeah. In July, her treatment was taken over by Dr. Osterman, and Andrea was back in a catatonic state and didn't speak freely with her like she had with Ferguson. And then later, people learned about the Modern Mother Worldly poem, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, you know? Yeah. Not a good poem. Modern Mother Worldly. Even even if it was, like, not just the worst thing I've ever read in my life. (laughs) Yeah, title enough. Yeah. They learned about this poem by the Warneckies, and it became clear that that's what Andrea had built her delusions around, this idea that her kid's soul were entirely her responsibility, and that because she was a terrible mother, she had doomed them to hell. The Warneckies deny having this influence over Andrea, though. They blame Rusty. And I don't want to be on the same side as Michael Warnecki on anything, so <laughs> I'm going to yeah. stop blaming Rusty. Because they said that he warned Rusty over and over again that his life was headed for tragedy because Rusty was working too much and cared too much about material things. The man's got five kids. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And that's why the family moved into a bus in the first place. Michael said that he and his wife did all they could to love the Yateses and that after everything they'd done for them, it was preposterous for them to be cast into such a terrible image. And they, I mean, weren't held responsible in any way, I'm assuming. Not legally, no. Yeah. But their image. In the people's court, though. (laughs) In the people's court, because they're talking about this image that that they've been cast into a terrible image. Their image is solely based on the things that they've said, done, and published. For example, at a protest at Brigham Young University, Michael called the female students, and we're talking about the female students at Brigham Young University, okay? Mormon Central. No, it's not Texas State. (laughs) He said they were contemporary witches and told them sarcastically to be a 20th century career woman and forget about your families. I mean, Kristen, we were literally called sluts. Do you remember that? No. Oh, my gosh. When we would wear, if they were yelling at everyone, but if you had a sorority, like, or any type of Greek letter shirt on, and you would walk through the, well, not, I guess the quad is, so they would stand at the stallions, and we would wear, like, our sorority shirts, and they would yell, sorority slut, like, yell and point at us. I think You I probably do. YouTube it. I think it's I do awful, remember but. that, actually. Yeah, I do remember that. Because they can just walk on any campus, <sighs> you know? Contemporary witches. I love all of these memes, though, of, like, how like men trying to call women witches is like a insult. But there's all these memes of like, like all these feminist memes that are like, oh, we are the granddaughters of the witches you weren't able to burn. (laughs) Like I'm obsessed. Oh, that's a Taylor Swift lyric, right? No, I don't think so. If it is, then she got it from like these protests because these are like, I mean, this was going on in like since the 60s. But I just love it. Where does it, we're the daughters? We're the granddaughters of the witches witches you weren't able to burn. (laughs) Oh, so this is like an old time. Mm -hmm. This is cool. Anyways, I just love when they call the witches. I'm like, hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But then Michael Warnecke tried to say that it wasn't because of him at all that Andrea decided to give up being a nurse to stay home with the kids. 
and later decided to homeschool them. When, like, he's out there saying a 20th century career woman forgets about their families. Yeah, I mean, that's literally what you're implying. Directly implying. Andrea's trial started on February 18th, 2002, and she pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. She was only charged with the murders of Noah, John, and Mary so that they could hold on to the murders of Paul and Luke in case they needed to try her again. Why would they want to try her again? If they didn't get the outcome they wanted. Like, if they didn't get a guilty verdict, yeah. I wonder how often that happens. As often as they can, I'm sure. They hold back charges so that they can charge them again. Yeah. The prosecution's job was not to deny necessarily that Andrea had been insane at the time, but to prove that Andrea had known right from wrong, as that is the burden of proof in an insanity defense in Texas. Did they know right from wrong? And despite the avalanche of expert witnesses testifying for the defense that Andrea was definitely in a psychotic state at the time of the murders, the prosecution had a few tricks up their sleeve. One of those tricks was a key prosecution witness, Dr. Park Dietz. He was a California psychiatrist, one of these like celebrity expert witnesses who also worked as a consultant on Law and Order. And he, yeah. (laughs) Like the show? He had interviewed Andrea for the prosecution, and he'd gotten her to admit that she thought she would probably be punished for what she'd done, but she said that not doing it meant risking Satan taking the kids. And on the stand, Dr. Dietz testified that Andrea had told him that she watched a lot of Law & Order, and he also testified that there had been an episode of Law & Order about a woman with postpartum depression who drowned her children in a bathtub and was found insane. And that the episode had aired shortly before this crime occurred, which established a motive and showed premeditation. We need to stop with these shows. (laughs) Defense psychiatrist. Giving people ideas. Yeah. Defense psychiatrist Dr. Lucy Purrier testified to rebut Park's testimony. And the prosecutor asked her if she knew Andrea watched a lot of Law & Order. And Dr. Purrier said no, implying that she couldn't have been a very thorough expert if she didn't even know Andrea watched Law & Order and that there was an episode about a woman drowning her children in the bathtub. I don't feel like that's true. Like, I don't feel like some people know what I want. No, I don't think I that's true no either. 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 But I think that it, it looks bad for her. It's like the tape of the cookies and Scott Peterson. Like, you didn't even watch the tape? Exactly. You didn't even watch the tape. The prosecutor asked her that if she'd known that, would she have investigated whether she got the idea somehow from the show? And Purrier said she supposed she would have asked about the show if she'd known. And this was hugely prejudicial to the jury, especially since the woman who wrote the book that I was reading, Suzanne O'Malley, she was also reporting on the trial, and she was also a scriptwriter for Law and Order. And she didn't remember any such episode. So she looked into it a bit more and discovered there was no such episode of Law and Order. He had made it up. Wait, what? Yeah, there's no episode of any woman drowning her kids. Now, there is an episode that is based on this case, like ripped from the headlines. After the fact. Way after the fact. And the crime wasn't committed the same way. She didn't drown them. And the episode implicates Rusty. (laughs) Also, also, why does it matter where she got the idea, you know? Because it proves motive and premeditation that she wasn't just crazy. That's true. Dr. Parks said... New new around here. (laughs) Yeah. He says he made a mistake, but he clearly planned to talk about this episode because the prosecutor is the one that brought it up. He brought it up in his questioning. Like, 
So, um, did you see this episode of Law and Order? And he was like, yes, actually, there was an episode about Law and Order about a bathtub. So there was an obvious plan to talk about this episode. Like, wouldn't you do a quick Google search to make sure you were remembering the episode correctly if you were planning on talking about it on the stand? Like, sorry, if you're being paid yeah. as an expert witness, misremembering is not a good enough excuse when you're going to say there was an episode that was this exact crime. Yeah, misremembering seems like a big problem. Yeah, and I don't even think she watched a Law & Order. So I think he was lying about that, too. Yeah. Anyway, he was all mad about his name being drugged through the mud. But I'm like, you were wrong <laughs> in a capital murder trial about something easily provable. Like, do better or don't do it at all. Yeah, like the internet was around. Yeah. Google it. Yeah. Was Google around in 2002? I mean, ask Jeeves or whatever. All right. He could have asked the internet somehow. <laughs> yeah. He worked for Law & Order. He was a consultant. He could have made a phone call. I mean, you yeah. know. Know your own yeah. business. On Tuesday, March 12th, after three weeks of testimony, the trial ended. The jury deliberated for less than four hours and found her guilty of two counts of capital murder. Three days later, the jury deliberated for 35 minutes and sentenced her to life in prison instead of the death penalty. But work mm. was already being done to appeal her case on the basis of this lying expert witness from Law & Order. And she got a new trial where prosecutors argued that she had drowned them because now they didn't have this law and order motive. So now they're saying that she had drowned them in order to escape the overwhelming stress of raising and homeschooling her children. Isn't quite as good of a motive as an episode of Law and Order. Yeah. Defense experts testified that Andrea deeply believed that killing her children was the right thing to do, that she believed Satan had taken over her body and her soul and was going to go after their souls next. But if she killed them while they were still innocent, they would go to heaven and she would have defeated Satan. They brought up the fact that she immediately turned herself in so that the state would execute her, thereby executing Satan. And she was diagnosed oh. with schizoaffective disorder, severe depression with schizophrenic symptoms. The jury deliberated for 13 hours over the course of three days and found that she was insane and they acquitted her of the charges. The jury foreman said that he believed she needs help. Wait, what? She's been acquitted? Yes. They said it was very clear to them that she did have a psychosis before, during, and after the murders. So she won't spend the rest of her life behind bars, but she will likely spend the rest of her life in a psychiatric ward. I don't think she's ever getting out of there. Oh, okay. Like, I'm not going to run into her at Kroger, like, when I go home for Christmas. No. Who are we kidding? You know I'm going to be at Randall's getting an apple fritter, but. No, you're not going to run into her at Kroger. Randall's. Randall's. You're not going to run into her at Randall's getting your apple fritter. She definitely doesn't grocery shop at Randall's. There's no Randall's here. What? There's no Randall's Is there still Lubies? I sound like a 90-year-old <laughs> worried about Lubies and Randall's. Lubies. <laughs> oh, Prosecutors said they were extremely disappointed with the verdict because this case has always been about bringing justice for the children. And Rusty had been under a strict gag order during the trial, and afterwards he expressed frustration at the prosecutors. He said, who are they really serving? Do they think the children want Andrea to be in prison? Do they think we, her family on either side, want Andrea to be in prison? Is it of any public benefit for Andrea to be in prison? He said he was so proud of the jury for seeing past that. So Rusty's family also doesn't want Andrea in prison. Mm-mm. 
No, I think they knew her state of mind that she wouldn't have done that. I know, but like it wasn't talk her. about Earth angels, though. Like I know to be able to see through grief to like, yeah. I just I would never. Let me be clear. I'm I'll never be that mature. <laughs> okay, like. I just couldn't. Well, and I think here's my thing with Andrea, because now she's better, and now she has to live with this forever. She doesn't believe- Is she better, though? I mean, she doesn't believe that Satan is in her and controlling her. Still? Yeah, she's been treated at the hospital by not Dr. S. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she's better. Tell me who your least favorite person (laughs) is. (laughs) She is better- as far as I know, okay. I, you know, I mean, they don't have their she she's at Kerrville State Hospital. And in 2012, she petitioned to attend weekly church services outside of the hospital, but her request was denied. And then in 2014, she and her doctors requested that she be allowed to attend supervised group outings with other patients. But they later withdrew the request due to media attention and public scrutiny, which mm-hmm. I don't really understand why. People won't let her go out on a group outing. It's not like she's a, you know, knife-wielding serial killer. Oh, people, but. oh, people think she's definitely a monster. Like, she'll be. I view these two, like, not the same, but, like, the media. Like, I, Scott Peterson going to the grocery store. Andrew Yates going to the grocery store. Like, yeah, it's not happening. You know? It's fine. I'm fine with her not being, having any outings. Yeah. Yeah. I think that. She has the worst punishment that, I mean, it's worse than prison, you know, just Mm -hmm. getting better and then knowing that what you did to your kids. Yeah. I don't have anything in here about where Rusty is now, but I do know that he's remarried and he has two more kids. I think he has two more kids with his new wife. And that is the story of the murders of Noah Yates, Luke Yates, Paul Yates, John Yates and Mary Yates. That is really sad. Yeah, it was really freaking sad. That was hard for me. That one was way harder than I thought it was going to be for me. I didn't think that I was really that emotionally attached because, you know, I would drive. I wouldn't drive like down their street, but I'd drive down El Dorado where you can like see like down a few streets down. You can see their house. It's right there on the corner. Yeah. And um, they would have like their little toys and stuff out there. So I want to highlight a couple organizations for this episode. The first one is, of course, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you are having thoughts of suicide, please, please, please reach out. You are loved. That number is 1-800-273-8255. Or you can chat or you can view the website. We'll put the link to it in the show notes. And the other organization that I wanted to talk about is the Postpartum Support International, because I think that there is this stigma around postpartum depression, and I think that this case caused some of that. Yeah. Because, like, I know growing up, I was always told, well, she did this because she had postpartum depression, which was not true. She did have postpartum depression that caused postpartum psychosis, which also you know, she also was schizophrenic and had uh, lots of other problems. Having postpartum depression did not cause Andrea Yates to murder her kids. And there is this stigma around it that there shouldn't be. So first, I want to say that. But also, I want to give resources if you do have postpartum depression. It's totally normal. 
Now they're saying this website says one in seven moms has it and one in 10 dads has it. Oh, man. Yeah. So there are a lot of resources that can help you with that. Uh, There's peer support for families, trained professionals that can help moms and help dads that might be suffering from postpartum depression. So that is postpartum.net. And we are going to link that in the show notes as well. Major love to you too, dads. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. It's going to be okay. You're doing good. Everything's good. All right. That's all I have for this awful story. This is probably going to be a long episode. So sorry about that. Probably made sense that this wasn't a two-parter because I don't know that someone would – this is like really dark, you know, like two weeks. I don't want to spend two weeks in this case. I know. We are done. I'm done. I bet you're glad you got it over with. (laughs) I really am, actually. Hey, peeps and creeps, thank you so much for listening to this really terrible, awful story, even though Kristen did a great job. Find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook. uh, Oh, my God. I almost said MySpace. I'm scrapping this. Hold on. (laughs) No, we're not. MySpace. (laughs) Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Should we get a MySpace? MySpace. (laughs) If anyone wants to set us up a MySpace, we would gladly take it. (laughs) Please do that. And join our Facebook discussion group. It's really fun. There's lots of great conversation. You can put case suggestions or ideas in there. You can also email us your case suggestions or ideas at creeperspod at gmail.com. And also tell your friends. Tell your friends about the podcast. That would be awesome. We can sign up for a MySpace. (laughs) Yes. Tell your friends to create us a MySpace account. <laughs> you could be on our top eight. Also, and join our Patreon. <laughs> I just feel like I really we're need to laugh. <laughs> I know. I think because we didn't have a lot of banter, we're just like screaming everything at you. Just join everything. <laughs> also, a big thanks to everyone who's left us a review on Apple Podcasts. They help us out in a huge way. So if you liked this episode, even if now you're sad and you have an iPhone... <laughs> We'd love it if you'd take a minute and give us a five-star rating and a review and be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll have our next episode as soon as it drops when I'll tell MoGab another ridiculously sad story. Please don't. I hope I don't. Please don't. Okay. Hey, also, bop on over to our Patreon and sign up so you can hear our bonus episode, which is also kind of sad. Sorry. Ooh. (laughs) God. (laughs) Yikes. Yikes. Bye, peeps and creeps.